Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. The AccuNet Mortgage Talk and Text Line is open now. Give Jeff a call at 855-616-1620. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome to the show. The election is coming up on Tuesday. Just a quick programming note. On Monday, we will devote at least an hour of the program to talking about any race that you want to talk about other than the race for president. Because I know whenever you have presidential elections, it sort of sucks the oxygen out of everything else. But if you're listening to our station, you hear all sorts of ads during the commercial break. You heard an ad from my friend Jim Ott, who's been a long-serving assembly person living in the North Shore. And and you will hear ads for all these different races that are out there. So on Monday's program, we're going to set aside at least an hour to talk about state Senate races, to talk about Congress, races for Congress, to talk about assembly races, other things that are on the ballot that candidly probably haven't gotten as much attention and probably haven't gotten as much attention as they deserve, given the fact that everybody pays attention to the race that is at the top of the ballot. To that point, I I understand that the vast majority, perhaps 99.9% of the polls, suggest that Joe Biden is going to win in in a walkover. And if you look at some of the polls in Wisconsin, well, they're they're all over the map. Uh, The Marquette University Law School poll has had a pretty consistent margin for Joe Biden over President Trump by four or five points, and that's been over the last several months. Now, the only thing I would say about that is that that same poll had Hillary Clinton winning by six points in its final poll, and and we know that that didn't turn out. Now, again, I, I... I've made this point before, the 2020 election is not the same as the 2016 election. Completely different dynamic, but I point that out. I also point out that earlier this week, there was an ABC News Washington Post poll that had Joe Biden ahead of Donald Trump by 17 points in Wisconsin. 17 points, 57 to 40. Let me say this. Nobody, nobody, nobody that knows anything about politics on either the left or the right, thinks that this is a 17-point race. I mean, I, I don't know that you've had any statewide race in Wisconsin, uh, maybe the second Tommy Thompson election in 94, but where, where there's been a 17-point spread. That's just not the way Wisconsin is. And the problem when you have the, these really, in my opinion, really, really bad poll numbers is they tend to become self-perpetuating because people see it, and if they tend to believe it, they say, oh, my gosh, my guy is losing by 17 points. I'm, I'm not going to go out and vote. That's why polls, I, I think the bad polls can be so insidious because they have effective, an effect of tamping down you know, voter interest. Here is all I will tell you about the question about whether or not Wisconsin is in play. Uh, President Trump is going to be making, what, an appearance, I think he's got another appearance scheduled before the weekend, and they have just announced that on Monday night, November 2nd, so this would be the night before the election, he is going to be appearing at a rally in Kenosha. So that will be the president's fourth trip to Wisconsin in a little over a week. The event is expected to begin about 8 o'clock at night. So the night before the election, President Trump is going to be back in Wisconsin. Now, I highlight that only for one reason. Candidates have access to polling and data, which is different than the general public gets. And it's very, it's much more precise. 
Um, the, the Marquette University Law School poll, for example, just to pick one, they want to be right, but it, but it doesn't matter. They don't care whether they're right or not because they're not making decisions as to where we spend time and where we spend money. They, they just want to be right because if they're not, they, they get mocked later on. And they, of course, pollsters always say, well, our polls are just a snapshot of, of things. And, and, you know, we, we're saying that this is what the election would have been. And then it's held, you know, a week later. So things have changed, et cetera. But, but campaigns, they've got to know. And so campaigns spend a lot more money and have a lot more sophisticated polling methods than the, the polls that are done by news organizations, et cetera, et cetera. And again, it's because the campaigns have to make decisions. And one of the ways that you can tell whether or not a a state, for example, is in play is where are the campaigns spending their resources? The fact that President Trump has been or will be in Wisconsin four times in the week before the election tells me that the Trump people think Wisconsin is still in play. If they thought President Trump was really losing Wisconsin by 17 points, you you wouldn't have the candidate here. Just like Hillary Clinton four years ago thought Wisconsin was in the bag for her and she never bothered coming. And I think that decision ended up, you know, perhaps, perhaps costing her that election. I think, you know, again, it's a situation where do, do I... Do I dispute the idea that maybe President Trump is behind in Wisconsin right now? No, I I don't. But at the same time, Wisconsin is clearly in play. Anybody that's writing this off is not reading the body language of a campaign because you don't bring a presidential candidate to a state four times, four separate times in the last week before the election, a presidential election, if you don't think that there is at least a decent chance that that candidate can, you know, turn people out and and get the win. That's all I'm saying. You look at the body language of campaigns and you look at where candidates go to tell you how they think they are doing in a particular race. And again, without talking about the national race, obviously the Trump campaign continues to believe that Trump can win Wisconsin, and that's why he's going to be back here uh, again. In this case, he's going to be back here um, in Kenosha the night before the election. My guess is that if it's 8 o'clock here, that probably is the last campaign rally that he's going to be conducting in this election season. Don't know that for sure, but probably the last. All right, when we come back, it's something the state of Michigan is going to require of restaurants. Is it unreasonable? I will explain. We will discuss. Welcome back to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. So very glad to have you with us. There's no question. COVID numbers are going through the roof. It has been my belief that there some places, including bars and particularly restaurants and small businesses, in some cases have been scapegoated by by, again, government. And in Wisconsin, our, our governor is big into the shutting down stuff. We want to shut this down. We want to shut that down. That's not Again, how I, I think you approach things, I think we'd be better off by doing contact tracing and putting the money into earlier testing and quarantines of people who test positive and all those sorts of things. But in the state of Michigan, and Michigan, again, has been one of these states under their governor whose you know knee-jerk reaction has been, let's shut this down, let's shut this down, let's shut this down, and it's had huge impacts on the economy. But, but here's something that Michigan has just done. Now, Michigan 
just like Wisconsin, just like lots of states across the upper Midwest, and just like pretty much all of the country, and by the way, just like pretty much all of the world, is seeing a, a return to the, the spikes in, in COVID-19. It, it's just... Maybe it's due to the fact that people are starting to go inside as we as the weather turns cold. Don't know. But everybody's wrestling with how do you keep this under control so the hospital system isn't overwhelmed until we end up getting a vaccine. Well, here's one of the things that they've done in Michigan, and it's one of the things. They have not closed bars and restaurants. They have reduced capacity. But here's one of the interesting things that they have done. They've said that starting, I think, at the end of this week, you know, if you patronize a bar and a restaurant, the requirement is going to be that all dine-in food service establishments must maintain accurate records of the names and phone numbers of patrons who purchase food for for consumption on the premises and the date and the time of the entry. So in other words, if you're going out tonight for your Friday fish fry and you go over to Gru's restaurant and and you're going to eat at Gru's restaurant, not takeout, but you're going to eat at Gru's restaurant, so you're going to be there, what the restaurant is required to do is the the restaurant is required to get your name, your address, and your contact information, a, a way to reach you, your email or your telephone number or whatever. Now, the reason behind that is because if it turns out that somebody tests positive for COVID-19 and then they ask them, all right, they do the contact tracing. Where were you? Let's look at the last 48 hours. Where were you in the last 48 hours? Well, Friday night, I went over to Gru's restaurant. Well, what time did you go there? I went there at 6 o'clock at night. We were there from about 6 to 8. Then what could happen is the contact tracers could go to Gru's restaurant, and they could say, okay, somebody somebody has tested positive. They were at your place between 6 and 8. Let's pull up the records and we'll be able to see the other people that were in the restaurant in that time period between six and eight. So then you can make a phone call. You can contact people and you can say, just so you know, um, you may have been exposed. You were in that restaurant. Somebody else was there that, as it turned out, they have now tested positive. Uh, you, you might want to go get yourself tested. All right. Our number is 855-616-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I got an email from a listener yesterday who made reference to that story and actually sent me the link to that and said, oh, my gosh, this is going to just kill, you know, bars and restaurants and establishments if they have to ask for people's names and contact information. And I thought about it for a little bit. And candidly, I don't think I could disagree more with the particular listener. I don't know about you, but and look, and again, I don't, I, I'm reluctant. I'm still uncomfortable eating inside restaurants. Most of the places I go, you're sitting outside. But, but I would have absolutely no problem at all providing that restaurant with my contact information. Matter of fact, I, I would do it willingly because candidly, if, if I've been in a situation where I might have been inadvertently exposed, I, I want to go find that out. I want to get that information. Now, look, I understand this isn't a silver bullet. Some people 
are going to lie to the contact tracers or for whatever reason they're they're not going to accurately recount places where they were. So it's not a perfect sort of system. But I guess I find it just as, as a patron, you know, if I had reservations again, it, I'm I'm going out to dinner tonight and we're going to be eating out on a on a patio under heaters and things like that. But I, I have no problem if. The, the restaurant said, okay, here, here's a condition. You know, Mr. Wagner, you know, we, here, we, we need to have your contact information because in case somebody happens to have something, we want to be able to get in touch with you. I wouldn't hesitate, would you? 855-616-1620. That's the Iconet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. As a matter of fact, I think that might be something that might make people feel perhaps even more comfortable going back to restaurants. Jeff, you know darn well that people are going to either lie or not comply and don't want to be bothered with doing this. And the restaurants sure as heck aren't going to want to give up staff time to record all this information. Interesting idea, but it won't work. Oh, I don't know. You you, you make you you make reservations. You you call up. Let's say you're you're calling up to make dinner reservations, and you say I, I've got a party of four coming in at six o'clock, and they say, okay, what's what's the name? What's your contact information? Okay, what what's your phone number? I don't know that that's that much of an imposition. You come in, you check in, you say, I mean, even if you don't have reservations, you show up, you say, hey, we'd like to have a table for four, and the hostess then says, or the host then says, okay, fine. Um, yeah, we, we've got a spot here. I, I need your name and I need your cell phone number. I, you know, would, is that really that burdensome on restaurants? 855-616-1620. We discuss next. Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. Getting a number of texts from people who have like privacy concerns. And I guess my, I, I don't know. I mean, a lot of the places that I, I go to eat now, when, when you call up and you make reservations, you give them your name and you give them a contact number, okay, because they want to make sure that, that you're going to show up or that they can reach you or whatever. I, I don't see this as being that much more of an imposition. You would have to keep track of it with the idea, and, you know, you, you keep it for two weeks or whatever the time period is, so if officials find out that somebody that was at your place test positive for covid they can get in touch with other people i I guess to me that's a small price to pay you can have my telephone number you know i'll give the restaurant my telephone number heck if i charge stuff they're going to have my credit card information anyhow with the idea that I, i i don't know about you i would like to get that phone call if it turns out that i might have been exposed to somebody who had covid i i'd like to get the call to say, I don't know, how, how are you feeling? Gee, you know, maybe you should go in and get tested. Plus, if that helps keep the restaurant open, I'm all in favor of it. Jeff, uh, this is Ray from Illinois. If we could do something like this and avoid having to shut places down, I'm all for it. My only question is, how is that information going to be secured so it doesn't get into the wrong hands? Other than that, let's do it. Well, I mean, the, the restaurant keeps it and hopefully never has to use it. It's only if the contact tracers find out that, hey, there was somebody in the restaurant on Friday at 6.30 who is now tested positive for COVID. Amy in Milwaukee. Amy, you're in WTMJ. Hello. Hi. Hi. So we were in Chicago this summer before the, the ban between Wisconsin and Chicago in a small store, a boutique, and we had to buzz to get in. As soon as we got in, they took our temperature and had us give them a phone number and an address. It took all of 30 seconds. Yeah. And it was fine. It was fine. 
Well, well, well right. And, and, and of course, you understand the purpose behind it. I mean, now I, I have a text here, Amy, that says, great idea for contact tracing, but it's an extra burden and cost for walk-in, no reservation establishments who are still operating with a bare minimum staff. But to your point, it, it, it's not like you're taking a life personal history of somebody. You're, exactly. You're, exactly. It's like, okay, you, you, you want a table for four? That's great. Can I have your name? And um, I, I, I need a phone number. You know what that's, that's, I, that's right, and there it was so simple. It was so simple, and we didn't have reservations. Clearly, we were in a small store, and it just hit what you buzzed to get in. They took your temperature, got your information, and on you went. Um, yeah, I guess. I mean, again, thanks for calling. Now, keep in mind, also. I mean, this is. I am suggesting this as an alternative, as an option. See, again, I don't want to shut down bars. I don't want to shut down restaurants. I'm the anti-shutdown guy. I am trying to come up with what I consider to be reasonable ideas that will allow businesses to operate. And and that's why I keep coming back to the whole idea of of contact tracing. You know, lots of testing. Let's tell people when they might have been infected so that they can then find out themselves so that they have it or not so they don't go out and infect more people. I mean, that the alternative is just shut stuff down, and I reject that idea. And I'm getting a lot of texts saying, "Well, we're we're concerned about privacy." And again, my my comment to that would be, you know, when, when you go into most restaurants, you pay with a credit card. They, they they've they've got your credit card number for goodness sakes. I mean, when you call up a lot of places and make reservations, they take it. When you go to play golf, you make a tea time. I mean, they they ask for your contact information. They get the phone number. I guess I just don't see that as being unreasonably burdensome if the alternative is, okay, well, we're just going to shut places down. I would say provide the information. And personally, like I say, I would like to be notified of that. If I have been in a situation where I might have been exposed to COVID without my knowledge, I'd appreciate if somebody tells me that. That that I think would be a positive thing. Will some people lie? Sure, some people will lie. I accept that. But that doesn't mean that something that isn't really going to cost a lot of money really isn't a huge unfunded mandate and might keep businesses open and stop the spread of COVID. You put that all together, seems to me it's a winner. Welcome back to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. If you follow me on Twitter, it's at Jeff Wagner 620. Just sent out a tweet with some of the details about President Trump's appearance in Kenosha scheduled for 8 o'clock on Monday night, which may very well be the last of the rallies he conducts before election on Tuesday. Matter of fact, unless he's unless he's heading west um, after that rally, it, it probably would be. That's kind of my, my sense, at least before um, election day, even though the polls have been open for a while. Again, my, my, my big point about this is I don't know how Wisconsin is going to turn out. I guess I will make a prediction at some point in time on, on Monday's program. But the, the bottom line of all this is candidates candidates have two things. They have time and they have money. And candidates don't spend their time and they don't spend their money in states or in places where they're either way ahead and have no chance of losing or they're way behind and have no chance of, of winning. And so one of the ways that you can tell 
what at least what campaigns think are going on and, and campaigns have a lot better information than you or I do that that's just the reality they, they've got all sorts of ways to know where the race is and things like that and so when you see the president staging four separate rallies in Wisconsin the last week of the election and arguably making his last campaign appearance before the election in Wisconsin in Kenosha on Monday night that tells me that the Trump campaign thinks that Wisconsin is in play not saying they think he's leading, but they think it is in play. Otherwise, they would have the candidate somewhere else. That That's just the way campaigns operate. Take that for what it's worth. This week's sponsor for the Wagner Home Improvement Showcase, presented by Great Midwest Bank, is All Right Home and Remodeling. When you want it done all when you want it done right, call All Right at 414-353-6910 or find them at allrightremodeling.com. The Home Improvement Showcase, of course, presented by Great Midwest Bank. This is the last day. I think we've been running this for nine weeks. Thanks to all the sponsors and our, our various marketing representatives for putting it together. All right. There is a piece in the, the Wall Street Journal today. That the headline is Joe Biden's COVID fairy tale. And I, I don't agree with everything that's there, but it, it, it goes through and it, it talks about COVID-19 and the way President Trump has handled it and, and the way Joe Biden, former Vice President Biden, says he would, would handle it. And the point of the article is, well, th- there's really no there there. Let me explain. I think it is fair to say that President Trump botched the handling of COVID-19 in the beginning from the perspective of minimizing it. I, I, I think that that's I think that that's fair. I think he would have been much better off, and we know this in retrospect, if in January and in February, instead of downplaying the significance of the virus and instead of saying things like, oh, but this is all going to be done by Easter, which now you know is fodder for all these ads, I think if he would have taken it, at least in his public comments, perhaps arguably more seriously, I think you know, he should have stepped off the stage, just kind of turned it over to the, the experts and, and let them drive what happened. I, I think he would not be getting as much of the criticism is is gotten because the problem is, I don't think that there's really anything material that President Trump could have done back in in March or April which would have stopped us from being in the situation that we are in now. Now, but. He's getting a lot of blame for it, and because he's perceived as being unsympathetic, unwilling to accept the, the nature of the disease, et cetera, et cetera, downplaying it, and and that's and that's in a political perspective, it, it's killing him. And I understand why that that's happening. I mean, he comes across as being unempathetic. He comes across as being unrealistic, and all those different things. Uh, Joe Biden, I, I, I've been listening to this, and I, I mean, Joe Biden says, well, I'm going to follow the science, I'll, I'll make things better. But I, I don't hear how that's going to happen from him. I, I mean, I just, and, you know, the, the president right now is talking about his stuff with, like, Operation Warp Speed, recognizing that we, we need a vaccine to get out of this mess. that That's just the bottom line of this. And the sooner we get a vaccine, and believe me, I understand there's issues, people aren't going to be willing to take the vaccine, etc. But but it is a start. The sooner we get a vaccine, the sooner an effective vaccine that we can start vaccinating people, particularly healthcare workers and those who are most vulnerable, that's the light at the end of the tunnel. 
Uh, and I understand we can we can talk about stuff on the edges. And, you know, did President Trump err by not being not being more aggressive and trying to push mask wearing and things like that? And that, that's all well and good. And I think that's a fair criticism. But at the same time, I'm having a hard time believing that we would be in any different situation now, today, October 30th. Had President Trump done some of these these things that would have shown him to be more empathetic and perhaps more understanding of the significance of this, I think we would have been in the same situation now as we were then. And my guess is that, you know, if Joe Biden wins on Tuesday and he's inaugurated in January as the next president, we're still going to be in that same situation. For people who think that suddenly it's going to be morning America and COVID is going to go away, I I don't think that there's going to be any fundamental difference because I don't think there's going to be any difference really until we we get a vaccine. It's why people have to be careful. You have to wash your hands. You have to maintain social distance. But, But the idea, I guess, that things would be materially different now and, and President Trump could have done something, I, I'm not seeing it. And my, my best evidence of that is look at what's going on pretty much all across the world. I mean, look at what's going on in, in Europe, where you've had a number of the leaders that have been extremely aggressive and admittedly taken a, a more serious tone towards COVID than perhaps you can argue that the president took. But but Spain is now going to Spain, I think, said they're locking down till May. You've got massive lockdowns in Germany and in France. They're wrestling with what they're going to do in Great Britain. This this is a worldwide problem. And the attitude displayed by a particular leader, some overreacting, some arguably underreacting, it really hasn't changed anything. Everybody is pretty much in the same boat. Our number, 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. All right, if if Joe Biden had been president in May or in March, what do you think, if anything, he could have done different than what Trump did that would have not had us in the situation that we're here now? 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Is is there anything, or was this whole thing just simply inevitable as medical science tries to grapple with a, an infectious disease that has kind of come out of the blue? 855-616-1620, that's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I mean, I know there's people out there who think, okay, once Biden wins, that this whole thing is going to go away. And, and I'm sorry, I just, I don't see it. There might be a different attitude towards it and maybe some of the public statements are going to be different but the underlying facts are going to be the same aren't they we discuss in just a moment back to take your calls here's wtmj's jeff wagner 855-616-1620 jeff i disagree i think if president trump had taken approach more like president reagan would have that is to speak directly to the people explain the problem and appeal for everyone to pull together then we'd be in a much better place now because of much more individual compliance with common sense health practices with fewer in denial i i understand but but at the same time let, let's look at the European experience where you, you have you have a lot of elected officials who, who took that exact approach. And Europe's essentially in the same position that, that we are in. Would any of this made any sort of material difference? And again, I, I think it is fair to criticize President Trump for 
downplaying the significance of this because, as he says, he doesn't want to panic people. That, that was a mistake. It was an error in judgment. There's no question about it. But would things have been materially different? And again, again, I point to the example of, okay, Europe having the same situation that we're, we're in now. 855-616-1620. Let's start with Don in Hartford. Don, good afternoon. Good afternoon. Uh, my point is, and when I spoke to the gentleman, I believe the President Trump in the beginning, back in January, after hearing the tapes from Woodward tapes, that he knew about it and when mm-hmm. he came out and told us right away, I think the American people would have followed his advice if he would have came out and said, please wear a mask. He has never once really get onto the mask thing. He doesn't believe it. You know that. Everybody knows that that's how he is on that. And that's a shame. I think that's the big problem all the way around. It starts at the top. He had to tell us we would have done it. People are having to learn it the hard way. As far as us with Europe, there's no comparison between us and Europe. Look at the percentages. We're wait, wait, I'm, wait, I'm, I'm sorry. You're, you're, you're arguing that it's worse in the United States than it is right now in Spain or in Germany or in France or in Italy? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, you don't think it is? No. Thanks. No. I mean, I think it's bad all over. I, I think it's it is a crisis. No. I, I think it is a a crisis stage all all over. And I'm not downplaying how things are now. And, and look, and, and and maybe maybe you're right. And I I think the president made an error in in not in in trying to downplay this because he didn't want to panic people. But the truth of the matter is, I I firmly believe that. That this was going to be a situation, like I say, you, you play this out in in Europe, and and you see where um, you had leaders that that embraced the the wearing masks and things, you know, much more than than arguably President Trump did. But you still see the, these huge numbers that that are out there, and I guess depending on what metric you want to look at, you can decide where it's worse or where it's better. But it's bad all over the world. Should he have done that? Absolutely. Would it have made a material difference? That's my only point. And I'm I'm having trouble seeing that. President Trump is going to, you know, suffer the consequences for his failure to appreciate that this wasn't going to go away by by Easter. There's there's no question about it. That's what's going to happen. But, I mean, do we think that it's going to be morning in America when Joe Biden, if Joe Biden is elected next Tuesday? And my answer is, if people think like that, I think they're going to be disappointed because my guess is we're going to be dealing with this in this country and in the world until we, we get a vaccine, which is hopefully a lot sooner than later. Okay, let's talk to Rob in Illinois. Rob, you're on WTMJ. Hi, Jeff. Uh, thanks for taking the call. Sure. So uh, I, I did a little bit of investigation on this and wrote a short paper on it back in March. So at the time that I did this, I believe if Biden had been president at that time, he would have listened to pandemic experts, especially those at John Hopkins University. At John Hopkins University, they had modeled the spread of the virus and what cities it would hit initially. At that time, there was uh, research out of the Australian Department of Health that showed the growth in the virus by country. And what it showed was certain countries in Asia had a much slower growth. Benchmarking of those countries to see what they're doing when I wrote the paper showed that they have a couple things going for them. One, they have a cultural norm towards wearing masks. Mm-hmm. Two, they don't have as much physical contact. They bounce instead of shaking hands. 
And then three, uh, they tend to be very hygienic. We'll take their shoes off before entering the home and things like that. If uh, we had done that benchmarking, I believe we would have done a better job of locking down. President Trump likes to say we locked down early. He did a permeable lockdown with China so people from Macau and Taiwan could enter the country. And he did a permeable lockdown in terms of U.S. citizens returning. The countries in Asia that did a good job, such as South Korea, had government monitoring of those early lockdowns. So you think we should have lo- you think we should have locked down earlier? I think you should have not necessarily earlier, because if you look at the dates, uh, some of those Asian countries uh, locked down about the same time. But they did a non-permeable lockdown. So mm-hmm. when a citizen returned, they were in a government-monitored yeah. housing, and they made sure that they were COVID-free before they let them go back in. Yeah, I the think. Let was, me just talk because I, I don't disagree, Rob. I think that I think that where where we missed the boat, I think we should have been more aggressive. I would have actually locked down sooner and been more aggressive. I guess my question though is, do, do you think Joe Biden would? Do you think Joe Biden would have done it? Because keep in mind, you've got you, you, at the time you you have people like Nancy Pelosi that were criticizing Trump for locking down too soon. I mean, I in in retrospect, I by the way, I agree with you completely. I just don't know that you think Biden would have really done that differently. Well, I, I think what one of the things, at least in the, the reading I've done, it seems like within the Department of Health and Human Services there are political appointees that are in decision making places that were inhibiting the messages from the scientists from getting through adequately. And I think President Trump, because of his bias of keeping the economy rolling, was much more hesitant to accept those scientific things. Now, now that we're in the state that we're in where the virus is so widespread, it's a totally different animal we're dealing with. But one of the things I would expect um, Biden to do is just give better, more consistent messaging on what's effective. One of the things I think we're really missing is educating people on the, the safety of masks. How do you put them on without infecting yourself? How do you take them off? How do you buy one that has the proper pore size? How do you disinfect it between uses? Mm-hmm. No, uh, thanks. I appreciate I'm sorry. I'm kind of up against the clock. I'm going to cut you off. But I, you know, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I think c- candidly, I think that, that, and, and you're talking to somebody who wears a mask when he's outside. I, I to me, I, I understand why we have the masks when we're indoors. I, I think, you know, we discussed yesterday, and I, I sent out a tweet on this. I mean, I think we can argue about how much of a difference it makes, but it can't hurt. And, and I, I do think, you know, people need to embrace that, especially in the indoor sort of situation. I, I On the other hand, I think that that ship has, has kind of sailed over the course of the last seven months. I mean, I think if people don't know by now that you should maintain social distancing, you should wash your hands, and you should, you know, wear a mask and put it over your nose and put it over your mouth, I, I'm not sure sure that we're going to be able to to educate them anymore. And I guess my point is, I, I think, I, I don't know what the Biden administration is going to be able to do if the Biden administration comes in in January. Now, to me, again, and I keep saying this, the, the reaction, the shutdown stuff, I don't believe that that's the way to go. Never have. I think we need to be smarter about that. It's it's putting resources into PPE. It's it's this operation warp speed. It's let's let's develop a vaccine as soon as we possibly can. It's encouraging people to again follow these things that prevent the disease. And and candidly, I mean, I agree. I think President Trump underplayed that um, significantly. Didn't 
appreciate how significant this was going to be and how long-term and long-standing it was going to be. Could he have done anything that would have materially made things different? That's where I'm, I'm kind of struggling with. And again, if you look at what's going on across the world, you see all sorts of countries had all sorts of different reactions. Um, some you might say were overreactions. Some you might say were underreactions. But at the end of the day, right now, as it gets colder again, we're all in that same that that same boat and believe me there's nobody that wants to get out of that boat faster than me and see some degree of a return to normalcy so people can go to ball games and you can go out and about and you can socialize with people without having to worry about whether you're going to get sick or not all right a lot of stuff coming up on today's program don't go anywhere this is jeff wagner Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome back to the show. As I said at the start, um, we're going to devote at least an hour of the program on Monday to elections other than the presidential race. And, and I know that just whenever you have a presidential year, it just it kind of sucks all the oxygen out of all the other races. But you, you have state Senate races, you have state assembly races, you have races for Congress going on. And we will spend some time talking about the races that you would like to talk about. We'll do that on Monday's show. Hey, something completely different for a minute. Typically, I leave the sports stuff to the, the folks down the hall. But interesting news, Ryan Braun, who started with the Brewers. He was drafted in, what, 2005. He was their first-round draft pick, debuted with the Brewers in 2007, and has played his entire career as a Brewer. It, it looks like that is probably over. Um, he completed, he after after he won the National League's Most Valuable Player Award, he, he signed a big long-term contract, and that contract is is now over. And I think everybody knows about the steroid scandal and the lying and the suspension and all that stuff. That contract is now over. Braun is going to be he turns thirty seven um, in November. He's he's been hurt a lot over the the last several years. There was one year. Uh, on the contract he signed a number of years ago, there was a, a mutual option of $15 million, meaning that either side, either the Brewers or Braun, um, could agree to accept it or, or, or drop it. The Brewers have decided, well, we're not going to pay Ryan Braun $15 million. And so there's a $4 million buyout. So they're going to give him $4 million, and they have now severed ties with him. That doesn't mean – now he's a free agent. That doesn't mean – that they couldn't go ahead and, and re-sign him to something less than that $15 million. But I think a lot of people think it's doubtful that that's going to happen. Again, Braun is going to be 37 years old. He's had injuries which have hampered him the last several years. I think you can make a strong argument that he has underperformed that big contract he signed a number of years ago. Uh, and again, just... They don't have a designated hitter in the National League, so you know where where is the spot for him? Plus, he's probably going to want a bunch of money, even if it's not fifteen million. So, I think the smart money is that Ryan Braun's career as a Brewer is probably over. I would guess if that's the case, Ryan Braun's career as a baseball player is over. I don't think, you know, I, I talk to people who are in that industry, and and we don't necessarily see that as Brewers fans. But Ryan Braun is extremely unpopular 
among fans for lots and lots of other teams. Why? Because people have not forgiven him for the the steroid stuff and then the lying about and all that. That's that that has been a black cloud over his head. And we you know wherever Braun goes when he's on the road, he gets booed mercilessly. I'm just saying that I think it would be a risk for some other team, like an American League team who might think he has a little bit of gas in, left in the tank, it would be a risk for them to take Braun on because, again, he carries, he has a lot of baggage. I mean, we all have baggage, but some people pack light. Ryan Braun does not pack light. So, you know, I, I just think, I, I think it would be a lot of risk and it'd be a PR problem. The fans wouldn't necessarily embrace it. And by the way, the guy's 37 years old and clearly, you know, with an injury history. And could he contribute? Maybe. But again, there's a lot of risk to it. So my guess is, just a guess, that Braun ends up retiring, which means he will have retired as a brewer. That doesn't happen a lot in Major League Baseball. I mean, in the era of free agency, you know, when I was a kid growing up, it was, you know, you'd start with a team and you'd complete your your whole year, your career with the team. That doesn't happen that often. I mean, the days of a Robin Yount starting with the Brewers and having a long and storied career and finishing with the Brewers, that doesn't happen much. Jim Gantner, the same sort of thing. You can probably count on you know, one hand or maybe two hands, all the different players who've had long and successful careers nowadays that start with one team and remain with that team throughout the entire career. It's not the way baseball operates. So if Ryan Braun, who will, like I say, have played his entire career as a brewer, if he is done as a brewer, if he is done in Major League Baseball, my question is, what what is going to be his legacy? Our number eight five five six one six one six twenty. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Is he going to be a beloved player like Robin Yount is a beloved player, like Gorman Thomas was a beloved player, like a lot of the Brewers over the years have been beloved players? Is he going to be remembered for the accomplishments and for his contributions as being one of the people who helped get the Brewers back into the playoffs? Or or is the baggage that comes along with that whole steroid scandal and the way he handled it, is that going to just kind of always be an asterisk for Ryan Braun, which changes the way fans look at him and view him? 855-616-1620, that's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. If this is it for Ryan Braun... I mean, I think he deserves to be recognized for being an outstanding player. But you know what? I think there's always going to be that cloud over his head. And I think that's going to stop Ryan Braun from ever being viewed in the same way as, again, people would view a Robin Yount or some of the other Brewers. What do you think? 855-616-1620. We discuss in a moment. You're listening to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. 855-616-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. If, if that's it for Ryan Braun as a brewer and as Ryan Braun as a baseball player, how is he going to be remembered? All right, here's a couple texts right before we go to the phones. Jeff, I personally love Brian Braun because he held his head and moved forward after making a big mistake and mentored other players like Yelich. I would love to see him stay as a brewer. Jeff, unfortunately, you can be a great person for decades, but one mistake or poor decision will tarnish all that. That's the case for Ryan Braun, unfortunately. Jeff, do not utter Robin Yount and Lion Braun's name in the same breath. 
Jeff, he never carried himself as one of us in Milwaukee. I think he will go down as a what could have been. Jeff, I think he will be remembered just like Sosa and McGuire, who were, of course, um, uh, Sammy Sosa from Chicago and McGuire from uh, St. Louis. Uh, Jeff, I always thought the Brewers were ripped off by giving Braun a contract based on performance that was likely enhanced by steroids. He has never been the same since he was caught. Jeff, this is from Richard in Watertown. Ryan Braun is clutch. I think he will be beloved. Jeff, good riddance to the cheater. No respect, no Hall of Fame for him. Yeah, well, I don't think there's any question. Ryan Braun is not getting anywhere near the, the Hall of Fame. That's, I, I think, w- would he have been if it were not for the steroid scandal? You know, who knows? But I don't think he's getting anywhere near the Hall of Fame. Okay, let's start with Ray in Sheboygan. Ray, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Jeff. Well, I this may seem harsh, but... In my opinion, he's a cheater. And not only is he a cheater, he is a horrible man and a person. And what he did, not just by cheating, he tried to ruin another man's life to cover it up. That is unforgivable. Yeah, no, thanks for calling. No, no, thanks for calling. I mean, that's... See, I I think there are other players from the steroid era who, who, who got caught taking the steroids, who fessed up to it, who owned up to it, and and who moved on, and it's not as big a clout. There's no question. Braun made the decision that rather than just acknowledging that he was eating those steroids-laced gummy bears like, you know, um, a goose gone barefoot, instead of that, he he decided to take the other tact of, I'm going to attack. And, And by the way, I remember when all this was going on, I was actually defending him at the time because I kept thinking, I can't believe that somebody would hold these press conferences and just look and lie. Silly me. I can't believe that somebody, instead of just saying, okay, I did this, I'm sorry, I'm going to you know, take my medicine and move on, I couldn't believe that somebody would lie like he did. And, and that's flat out what he did. And, and you're right, Ken. I mean, it's not just steroids. The problem Ryan Braun has with legacy is it's the... And I don't even want to say it's the cover-up. It was it was the active lying and the attacking the, the people. That's, I, I think, what raised... I think fans overall would have been much more willing to cut Braun a break if it had just been, okay, he, he's coming back from this injury and he's trying to take this stuff so he could continue to play and that's wrong and it's against the rules. But it was that next step. It was the lying about it that I think turned a lot of people off. Um, but but will will that affect his legacy overall? Ken and Rubicon. Ken, you're on WTMJ. Yeah, hi. Uh, yeah, I, 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 I can't even think about all the, all the other factors. All I'll, all I'll ever remember about Ryan Brown was the he has <clears throat> had one of the sweetest swings in baseball history, as far as I'm concerned. I mean, it, uh, his uh, his, uh, his uh, and, and I can't. Uh, I mean, and that doesn't yeah. uh, that doesn't count for me as for, for whether it's good or bad or anything else, but. On, on the field, his swing was one of the sweetest in baseball it, history. It was, you know, the thing, That's I mean, really all I got to No, well, thanks. No, I appreciate it. I mean, it's it's like I mean, and I can remember a, a young pre-injured Ryan Braun, and it was just it was it was just fun to watch the guy, just like it's it's fun to watch Christian Yelich nowadays. And and I I don't think there's any question. Again, I Braun tailed off in the last several years, um, and whether that was because of injuries or whether he was juicing beforehand, and a lot of the earlier stuff was. 
was perhaps artificially enhanced. I mean, I don't know. We, you know, we'll never know. But I, I don't think he's had a Hall of Fame career. But he, he's had a darn good career. And again, the, the thing that distinguishes him is he, he's been a brewer from the beginning and a, till till the end, which I, I think is you know very very impressive. Unfortunately, there are some mistakes quote-unquote, error, and I, I don't know that he made a mistake. There are some decisions that you make that you come back from, um, and then there are others that you, you don't. And I think in the eyes of the fans, I think a lot of people, for example, like one of our texters said, kind of feel cheated a little bit because he got this big contract and really probably hasn't performed up to it. But part of that might have been because that contract was based on, well, some phony numbers. 855-616-1620. What's his legacy going to be? Dave in Hales Corners. Dave, you're on WTMJ. Yeah, I'm in agreement with the uh, last couple callers there. Uh, you know, you can have all the skill you want, but when he signed that contract, he knew he was lying to the Brewers. He knew he was on drugs already, and he took the Brewers for a ride. And once he signed that contract, we were stuck with him. He was a could have been a better player, but uh, in that his inability to come clean, even when he was busted, he never apologized. He had no remorse for what he did. Sorry, I'm. I am. Uh, all of my paraphernalia that I had for him is gone. Yeah. No, in fact, again, I, I think it's that, that's it's and it's. You make the point that I was just kind of saying. It, it wasn't just the. Okay, I, I'm, I'm going to take the I'm going to take these steroids because I'm coming back from that injury and, and this is going to help me, et cetera, et cetera. It, it was that next step that I'm going to be I'm going to be aggressive. I'm going to deny I did it. I'm going to attack the the guy that took the test. I'm going to attack and I'm going to challenge all the methodology when you knew in your heart of hearts that you were guilty as hell. That's I, I think that's the thing that has had that black cloud that's followed him throughout for the last six or seven years. And it's one of the reasons why, even if he wanted to play on, my guess is no, no team wants to touch him. Um, let's talk to Jeff in Fox Point. Jeff, good afternoon. Hey, Jeff. I think he's definitely not on Robin Yount level, but he's also not at the lower end of the spectrum like a Ty Cobb because he's had done quite a bit, I think, to try and make up for – the series of mistakes. Um, for example, I was there the night that he won that crazy 18 inning game. And then after that, he did this interview with Ms. Minner at the end of the game. And he made this really nice, like acknowledgement to fans in the interview. Mm-hmm. And it's moments, it's moments like that, that I, that I think people w- will remember and they won't despise him as much as certain other baseball players. Okay, so, well, I mean, I, I think that, you know, when I, I mean, when I, when I think of Ryan Braun in the last couple of years, I mean, I, I think of some of those Brewers clubhouse celebrations, you know, when they qualified for the playoffs or, you know, they, they made the championship finals a couple of years ago against Los Angeles. And I, I think of Bob Uecker being in the locker room and I think of everybody celebrating and I think of, of Yount obviously realizing, and Yount, I'm sorry, Braun recognizing that he was kind of in the, the closing stages of his career and maybe appreciating more. And I mean, I, I think of that stuff, but I, I have to admit, and this is, it comes from the perspective of somebody who publicly defended him years ago. Uh, it, it's, I think it's that sense of betrayal. And that's what I think is going to be tough for a lot of fans to get back to. Uh, he deserves credit. I mean, and, and I, I love to see, just like I hope the Bucks are able to make the commitment with Giannis to keep him in Milwaukee for his entire career. Braun could have been that special sort of guy. He could have been viewed in the same sense as a Yelt. He could have, you know, he could have had that opportunity, but you know, he blew it, and he has nobody but himself to blame. James in Milwaukee. James, you're in WTMJ. Jeff. Hi, James. 
I believe the same thing. I think uh, up until he uh, uh, messed up. I was I was uh, a Ryan Braun fan, but after that, I think that everybody's got sour, and I soured on him too. And I think that he could have been, like you just said, robbing you out. He could have been the the face in the thing of the franchise, and really been been something for everybody to brag about uh, yeah. uh, with all his records and everything else. That he could have uh, stayed here for a long time, yeah. but instead he he chose he chose the road to, uh, of destruction. Yeah, now thanks for calling. There's no question about it. I mean, when Robin Yount comes back to Milwaukee, he's treated as the the returning prince. I I, I don't think that there's going to there's got to be an appreciation for Braun and his accomplishments and stuff like that. But but he's never. I don't think he's going to be. He's not going to be beloved. It, it's just I think there's the sense of betrayal that's out there. Um, let's see, Jeff Ryan Braun was the face of the Milwaukee Brewers, and I think he blew it after the steroid thing. Um, uh, let's see, and Jeff, I'm certain the Dodgers will have Braun. Any team that would knowingly let a player be on the field with COVID surely wouldn't have a problem with Braun's ethics. I, mean, I, I again, I just, I mean, who knows? You know, maybe so. But the problem is, he's 37 years old. He's got a lengthy injury history that's there. Um, I don't see too many teams dumping a whole bunch of money on him, maybe an American League team that has the designated hitter. But even then, you've got all this baggage that's out there. My guess is Ryan Braun retires to his mansion in Malibu and counts his dollars and enjoys enjoys his career. And uh, because there are second acts in America, it, you know, I wouldn't be surprised. Maybe he shows up on, on TV as a commentator or something like that. But he, he didn't help himself. He could have been... He could have been one of the two or three greatest brewers ever, and he blew it. And he has nobody to blame but himself. Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. You know, one of the interesting things about the text line is it just... You, you you get to see how, like, some people are just sort of wrapped up in, in their own little obsessions. Okay, now we spent the last segment talking about baseball. I, I did that intentionally because I wanted to get away from COVID and get away from politics, just, just for a couple segments of this. So the question was the legacy of Ryan Braun. Let me share with you a couple of the texts here. What does Braun care? He's a multimillionaire. Like Braun, you will regret defending Trump. If Trump wins, this country will see dark days. So, okay, so we're we're talking about Ryan Braun, and we quickly pivot to Donald Trump. Now, if you would think that that's the only one, no, no. Jeff, it is so unfortunate we hold Braun to a much higher standard than our president. They both cheated and lied, and we put in the White House, etc., etc. Then we kind of go off. I could read you more about this, but I have at least a half dozen texts from people who you want to talk about Ryan Braun in baseball, and it's all, it's Trump, it's Trump, it's Trump. At, at some point in time, you know, it's just not healthy. <laughs> I'm just telling you. The obsession with the obsession with we, we hate Donald Trump or, you know, we hate Joe. The, the obsession that some people and you know who you are, the obsession that you have with this. It, trust me, it's not healthy. You, you need to you need to be able to dial back every once in a while. Turn on the Hallmark Channel. Just kind of relax. Stress, you know, just de-stress a little bit. The sun will come up one way or the other. Trust me on this. On on Wednesday morning after the election, the sun is going to come up and the country will go on. And maybe you're going to be disappointed that your guy lost or maybe you'll be thrilled that your guy won. But trust me, 
the world is is going to go on and it it's not all about how obsessed you are about this political figure or that political figure when you can't talk about baseball for 15 minutes without bringing up the president you got a problem all right 131 you're smiling melissa <laughs> Yeah. What can I say? What can you say? Absolutely. Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. (laughs) Okay, now I have to explain this because my wife, Fran, she has six sisters, which means I have have six brothers-in-law through through her. Um, My late wife, Sue, her oldest, her oldest sister, Jan, her her husband, Don, my brother-in-law, um, he, great guy, with the exception of the fact that they, he lives in Dallas and he's a Dallas Cowboys fan. So, But but other than that, you, you have to kind of get along. He, he's a good guy otherwise. For years and years, not anymore, he's retired, but for years and years, he worked, um, he was a, a regional distributor for, for a toy company. And so you know, he would be one of the guys that would go around and he, he handled like orders from like the big stores and stuff for, for toys. And it was always fascinating to talk to him because in in the summer, I mean that, that's when that's when like the toy stores, the big the, the Toys R Us, and I, I know they're not around anymore. But you know the stores, they would be making the big orders of of what toys they wanted, and it was always this fascinating insight because I'd always kind of quiz him, what's the hot toy going to to be? Because a lot of times it's the stores and the distributors, they know what that's going to be beforehand. They know that hey, Cabbage Patch Kids or, or whatever is going to be big this Christmas. So it was always great to get th- this insight as to what was going to be that the hot toy that was out there well 2020 is unlike any year that we've we've lived through and I, I understand that there's a lot of people who are hurting economically but I'm looking at a story in the Washington Post um, from today saying that even even in a pandemic year that they're still expecting that um, consumers are going to spend on average about six hundred and fifty dollars on gifts this holiday season and even though like two out of five adults say they plan to buy less this year. Um, what they're saying is that parents tend to prioritize the children on, on their gift lists. So, you know, if if you're going to cut back, you, you tend not to cut back on, on stuff. It might be stuff for yourself um, or for your brother or your sister or your in-laws or whatever. It, it's not so much for the kids. That That's just what they find with the habits. So what they're looking at is is what are going on with toys. And what are the hot toys going to be this year? And it, it's sort of interesting. It, it ties into what I was just saying a minute ago about everything old is new again. Here's the deal. What they are finding is that, of course, during the, this pandemic, toy sales have climbed 18% so far this year. Now, part of that was due to once everything was shut down in, in March and April, what you had was a lot of families who were, were turning to like the, the traditional, like the board games, the, the monopolies and life and all those different games because it was stuff that the family is at home, you can't go out, you can't go to movies, you can't do any of this other stuff, so let's go back to some of these board games and it tended to be the, the traditional stuff. I mean, I, I know, you know, during, during the lockdown, we, um, you know, Fran and I, and we, sometimes we, we'd have friends over, or we'd have my nephew over, and you know, you'd, you'd play Yahtzee, you'd play those, those different types of games. My wife loves to play these, these different card games and stuff. I mean, I, I like board games and things of the like. So you'd play things like that. One of the interesting things that they're seeing 
as this has matured. Yeah, originally it was kind of like board games and things like that. Now what they are seeing is what they're describing as a fundamental shift in toy buying habits. And what they're finding is that parents are going back to, to their childhood. And the hot thing this year is starting to be classic toys um, for for kids who can just like engage in open-ended play. So here are a couple of the classic toys. These are the things that are very big. Um, Tonka, the, the toy trucks, I mean, up huge already. Lincoln Logs, Light Bright, remember that? Light Bright, Care Bears, that's, that's big. Parents are buying toys they know. Barbie Dreamhouse, Tonka Mighty Dump Trucks, some of the other things that are really hot. Matchbook Cars, big. Remember Matchbook Cars? Hot Wheels. Apparently, they're having trouble keeping Hot Wheels in stock because people are going back to, again, it's not moving away necessarily from the video games, but it's going back to the classic toys that they're giving the kids. And the list goes on and on and on. Etch-A-Sketch is apparently making a return as well. I said matchbook cars, Lego, Lincoln Logs. We mentioned that as well. People are going back to these sort of traditional toys that that we all grew up with, like the Tonka trucks, with the idea that, hey, you could give one of these heavy-duty sort of Tonka trucks to your kid, and you, you put them on the floor of the living room, and then they're going to be able to play with that. They don't need to be entertained. They're going to be able to be able to make their own fun with that. So on a Friday afternoon before the election, I thought we'd have a little bit of fun in this segment of the program. Our number, 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. All right, when I say classic toys... They are making a comeback. You know, what What was your favorite classic toy? And do you think it's something that your kids or your grandkids would enjoy just as much as you did? 855-616-1620. Let's talk classic toys. For me, I tell you, I, I love Matchbox cars. Matchbox cars. I wish... I don't know what my mom or dad or I did with the matchbook cars that I had. Wish we had them. I love the Hot Wheels. And I'm, I remember, I'm old enough to remember the, what you would do is you, you'd have the plastic track that you would set up and you'd go to the sofa and you'd put the start of the track up on the sofa and then, you know, it, it was all gravity based and then you'd put the Hot Wheel car down there and it would go taken off down there. I could spend hours doing that. So let's talk classic cars. Let's have a little fun on a Friday. 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Some classic toy from your past that you think has just as much relevance and would be just as much fun for your kids, your grandkids, whatever, for kids now as it did when you were playing with it back in the day. 855-616-1620. We discuss. Back to Take Your Calls. Here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. 855-616-1620. Here's one of our texters that, that actually, I think, gets what's going on. This return to the classic toys that we're starting to see, parents buying the classic toys for their kids or their grandkids. Jeff, what you're saying makes complete sense. Given that our kids are spending all day on screens with virtual learning, it's good to have them exercise their minds without electronics. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're sitting there, you're looking at the computer screen, the, the kids looking at the computer screen all day with the virtual learning. Well, okay, I understand some kids, okay, I got to have that video game, but but it's also, 
here, get away from the screen. Here's the Tonka truck. You know, here's the matchbook car. Here's the Legos. Just just go do something in the world. Create something that's not on that, that screen you're looking at. 855-616-1620. Let's start with Chris in Cedarburg. Chris, good afternoon. Good afternoon. Um, I used to like the mini bake oven. Oh, with the light bulb? With the light bulb, right? Yeah. Right. And I don't think anything ever is actually 100% done, but in in your head you thought it was. Or the creepy crawler machine where you put the um, hot hot plastic or gel rubber and make those um, the spiders and the bugs. Right. Right, yeah. The I see. Let's go back to the easy bake ovens. I, I always remember watching the commercials for that, and and you'd see these people. They'd be making these cakes and cupcakes, and they looked absolutely outstanding. And and they never. I mean, I, I had friends who who had sisters who had them. Out. Right. It never. It never looked like it looked on TV, did it? <laughs> no. No. I think it was all the prep and the effort and the stirring and all the like the chemistry involved, and then you kind of lost interest. Right. The time it was exactly. But they, but no, but it gave but it gave you it gave you something to do. Eight five five six one six one six twenty. Mike in Milwaukee. Mike, you're in WTMJ. Hello. Hey Jeff, how are you? Real well, thank you. What do you think? Good, great segment to have to lighten things up on a Friday before an election. Yeah. <laughs> That's for sure. <laughs> um I uh I heard you talking about matchbox, but I just wanted to say something really quick about the last caller. I have two younger sisters, and they, one of them had that Easy Bake Oven, and absolutely, it never came out the way it looked on TV. <laughs> yeah. Ever. Right. We're, you're making cupcakes. That's great. Oh, it's not quite the same. But, yeah. but it's still, it was it was the pro. I mean, okay, you're making a cupcake with a light bulb. I mean, you know, that, at the end of the day, yeah. how? But, but good. Okay, so what was your toy? What was your classic toy that you think would be just as cool so now? I did, I did love Hot Wheels, but um, the one thing I remember playing with my brother and my dad was this game called Rebound, and it was very basic. Um, it was like a little board, like a plastic board, and you had uh, three red and three blue pieces, and the pieces were a metal ball surrounded by plastic, and you'd shoot it down one side of the board, and it would hit like a sideways rubber band, bounce off another sideways rubber band, and then come down the other side, and depending on where it landed, you get you know a certain amount of points. Mm-hmm. Sure. Sure, kind of, yeah. We played for hours. Love yeah. that game. Yeah, and I think you know it's it's funny. This is all bringing it back to me. The game I one of the games I used to love was um, basket. You know, where, where it was kind of like a basketball thing, and you play with a ping pong ball, and there you there were. Um, like little flippers, there was there was like I don't know eight ten holes whatever that was, and the ping pong ball would roll into one, and then you'd shoot it up, and if you made the basket, you got two points, and it would roll around again. I, I could I could kill an amazing amount of time uh, doing that. Jeff, my mom was so smart, told me to hang on to all my toys of this nature from my childhood. Five children later, with two still at home and three grandsons now to boot. All of them, myself included, have a great time playing with my old Legos, Hot Wheels, Barbies, Lincoln Logs, and my personal favorite, the Fisher-Price Little Wooden People. Oh, and as a bonus, I held on to a bunch of my own old 33 RPM albums that has made me extremely cool with my college-age daughter now. Um, Yes, Jeff, my favorite toy was called the Erector Set. Sure, I remember the Erector Set. came with many metal pieces, and you took the screws out and nuts out, and you built something. Um, Jeff, uh, uh, let's see. Growing up, my brother and I used to play with Little Tyke's waffle blocks. My mom saved them and passed them on to our two sons, and we spent hours building skyscrapers 
and towers with them. Jeff, I got my kids a giant slot. I got my kids a giant slot car track out of inspiration from my childhood. It's awesome and addictive. We've spent a lot of time and money making it bigger and getting a lot of cool cars. Yeah, I remember the the slot car places and and there would actually be actually even businesses where you could go and you could race the slot cars and things like that um no question about it uh, jeff my favorite toys as a child were matchbook cars i grew up in the early 70s so those are the ones i like um in my midlife crisis i've been trying to collect and find all the ones that were my favorites when i was a child so i can have those as a memory of my childhood i have um I um I have a question about 100. I have about 40 of them from the 1960s. Well, there you go. And by the way, as midlife crises go, trying to collect matchbook cars is a pretty good one. Let's talk to Steve in Genesee. Steve, you're on WTMJ. Hey, Jeff. Uh, great uh, great conversation. Uh, what, some of the most fun I ever had was those electronic football games where you would have one side, the other side, you'd have that vibrating board and you put the player the football in one of the players the line yeah. then you would turn the switch on right. and then you would just watch him go right and, and and a lot of times the, the the player that had the little ball he would instead of running one way or the other he would just kind of like turn around or sometimes turn and run yeah. the opposite direction and you'd be going no 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 go the other way yeah i remember all that yeah yeah no yes. it, oh it, god that was so much fun it, well, thanks now the problem is you know thanks for calling i mean you know nowadays when you've got the madden football and you've got all the players and stuff. You wonder if it would hold kids' attention to do that. And I can remember you'd, you'd line people up, and and then you turn it on, and they would vibrate, and they would move along. I, you just wonder if it would hold people's attention now. But to the point that our, our first texter made, I think it is true. One of the reasons this stuff is coming back is. People need to get away from the the virtual learning. You need to get away from the computer screens. You need to get away from the TV. And some of that stuff, using your own imagination and and picturing those little plastic guys vibrating or you're sitting there with the Tonka toy truck, you know, that's pretty much indestructible and you're running that all around. Uh, By the way, a number of people are also referring to one of my favorite games as well, Rock'em Sock'em Robots. Matter of fact, a couple years back, for my nephew. Now, he's probably outgrown this. But I, I, we always, for Christmas, always wanted to get him at least like one traditional sort of board game or something. And a few years back, we, we got Rock'em Sock'em Robots. And that, I would say it held his attention. But the truth is, my brother and I played probably with it more. But And I'm not sure it made it past, you know, Christmas week. But we, we had a lot of fun. I used to love the Rock'em Sock'em Robots. Let's talk to um, Tyler in Fond du Lac. Tyler, you're on WTMJ. Yeah, hey Jeff. Hi, Tyler. Um, as a parent with three with three young kids, um, and what I keep hearing from everybody who's calling is one of the other big factors is I think this really engages the parents a lot more to sit down and play with their kids right. because they're things that the parents are interested in. Um, yeah. But yeah, my thing was a uh, I had a suitcase full of action figures and a suitcase full of the classic Legos that weren't predestined to only be one thing. Okay. Um, yeah. yeah. No, you're you're um you know you're no you're you're right and see I, I like what you just said because you're right that it's it's something you can do a, as a family you pull out the the Lincoln logs you pull out the erector set or you pull out the Legos and you start building stuff and, and yeah the, the kids can do it but it's also kind of fun here let me help you out and it, it becomes sort of this family thing it's something that everybody can do together and it, it's easy it appeals to all generations and you end up spending some quality time. 
That's what it's all about. No, no, thanks. I, I, and that that is one of the. I mean, that is one of the things you see, kind of, with the the board games and all. And my wife is great. She's she's really great about this. She's always like, okay, well, you can give people things, but one of the big gifts she likes to give to her grandchildren and my nephew and things like that is it's that that kind of gift of time. And and that's one of the things you can do in a pandemic sort of world where you you can't go out as as much as you would like, and you can't. Okay, we can't go to this place and we can't go to that place. But what we can do. We can spend some time as a family together, and we can we can play this board game, or we can play Yahtzee, or we can do whatever. And and that's something that maybe people um, again recommend. So I wanted to take a quick walk down memory lane. Like I say, everything old is new again. And if you if you happen to have some of this stuff sitting in a basement or in mom's basement or you know your closet or your attic or something, well, get ahead of the game because these toys are all starting to come back. Go up, pull them out of the attic, and um, you know, share them with some young person in your life, and you might find that you have a little bit of fun as well. Stick around. Lots coming up in the third hour of the program. This is Jeff Wagner. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome back to the show. Another bloodbath in the stock market, as Melissa was talking about. The Dow Jones down another 455 points. The NASDAQ, percentage-wise, down even more. They're down 348 points. That's 3.1%. So what's going on? Well, it, it's as it's been all week, it's pandemic fatigue concerns that um, some governments might issue more lockdowns that would have a devastating effect on the economy. I, I think it's it's election fatigue. Everybody's kind of on their last nerve. And, and today, it's also, at least in the technology field, it's based on some real numbers. Um, Twitter uh, down 20%, at least at the in, in after-hours trading, because of slow growth. And, and Apple, and, and Twitter and Apple are, j- are just huge, huge companies. Apple down 6% um, because their quarterly iPhone sales were down from year to year. And while Apple has all sorts of products, the, the bottom line is it, it's the iPhones that still really drive stuff. Um, I think a lot of this is going to settle down. That's my sense. It's going to settle down once we get past Tuesday and, and we get some degree of certainty, whatever that certainty is going to be. Election Day, by the way, less than a week away. WTMJ is the only place for the best election coverage in the Badger State. Join us Tuesday night for Decision Wisconsin, the 2020 general election. John McCure, Eric Bilstadt, and experts around the country give you the results and analysis as the votes are counted. It's Decision Wisconsin. It's Tuesday night starting at 8 o'clock here on WTMJ. Okay, a couple miscellaneous things to cover before we bring up Pop Culture Corner. The um, If you look up the definition of dumpster fire in, in the dictionary, what you are going to do is you're going to see a picture of the members of the Milwaukee Fire and Police Commission. It, it's, it is amazing to me that that Tom Barrett and, and at the end of the day this th- these are Barrett's commissioners it's amazing to me that Barrett could have allowed it to get this far the fire and police commission has seven members it, it's actually one of it might be the oldest citizen review board in the country i think it dates back to like 1885 but it has become a national laughing stock and if, if it and, but the problem is it's not funny because you've got members of the Fire and Police Commission that are faced with a, a law enforcement crisis 
we are looking at a homicide rate in Milwaukee County and in particular the city of Milwaukee, you're going to have to go back to the early 1990s. I mean, the, the time of, you know, street gangs shooting each other up in, in um, you know, cocaine wars, you know, crack cocaine wars. You're going to have to go back to that to come close to homicide numbers that we are going to see this year. And, of course, it's not just homicide numbers. It, it's shootings. It's all sorts of other forms of violent crime. So, you know, what do you have? You have the Fire and Police Commission faced with all this. They run the best police chief that the city of Milwaukee has had in 25 years. They run Al Morales out of office. All right. The their interim choice decides that he's not even going to apply for the job. So they start holding, you know, interviews for other candidates. And I I think, you know, there's only like one internal candidate who knows the police department, who makes the final cut and at least makes the first six. And then he doesn't make the the final cut of this. Well, it, it gets even worse. Meanwhile, you've got, you know, all sorts of conflict of interest questions involving one of the guys on the fire and police commission, the former chairperson. You've got the, um, You've got the um, executive director who was essentially run out on a rail and, and she's decided she's leaving and she's finally going to she's announced that she was leaving a while back and she's apparently going to be gone on Friday. So on today. So you, you have no executive director. You have this completely and I'd say it's dysfunctional, but that is that would be to insult dysfunctional groups. It's completely and totally out of control. Now, on top of that, to make matters worse, um, one of the seven members, the guy's name is Raymond Robakowski. He announced what I think yesterday he's done. He just says, I'm, I'm, I'm out of here. He said he's stepping down immediately. He's gone, citing its dysfunction. He says, when, so- when something doesn't feel right, you have to step away. So he's quitting on, the, I, I can't do this anymore. Um, interestingly, the thing about Robakowski that distinguishes him from the other six is he's the only guy that has law enforcement experience. I mean, he was at least a Milwaukee police officer for the better part of, of 20 years. So he has he's the only one that has a clue as to how an urban police department should operate. Here, here's what he said. He said, look, I he said, this has got to be the most dysfunctional group of individuals I've ever worked with. And the most pitiful thing about it is that none of them has any knowledge of how a police department even operates. Um, you know, it's like none of them have any idea. He said, I stayed long enough to get them, I think, the three best candidates for the chief. Hopefully there's no shenanigans or backdoor stuff going on. Um, I, I think any of the final candidates would be okay. But, you know, he's 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 just heading out. Just, you know, heading out because you just can't take it anymore. And again, now you're left with six members, so that there's you can't get a majority, theoretically. And none of them, none of them have any law enforcement experience. Um, now, you go through the list. I'm sure they're all nice enough guys. You've got, you know, the, the chairman who is the president and chief solutions officer of something called the Multicultural Entrepreneurial Institute. You've got the vice chair who... Um, lawyer and was an administrative law judge, no law enforcement experience. You have one guy who um, was a, is a retired city of Milwaukee fire lieutenant, so no law enforcement experience, but at least on the fire department. You have another guy who is a pastor at a Baptist church, wonderful avocation, no law enforcement experience. You've got uh, another guy who was an attorney 
And then you've got um, Ann Wilson, who um, is the manager of the Hillside Terrace Resource Center for the Housing Authority. So you got six people, uh, nobody with any experience in police work, one one was on the fire department, and they're making decisions about policies that are going to be carried out in an urban police department. It is an absolute total recipe for disaster at a time when you need leadership. We, there, there is it is rudderless, completely and totally rudderless. And then, of course, you have I mean, look, I understand why people wouldn't be part of this, because then you have some of these members of the city council, some of these aldermen who have decided for whatever reasons to pander to some of the loudest and most bizarre voices in the community. And so, you know, they're out there. I mean, you've got the common council that's trying to push a resolution that would stop the police from being able to use canine dogs. I don't think that there's any any city anywhere in the country that would push something so radical as that. And, and their justification is, well, you know, they used police dogs back in the concentration camps in Nazi Germany. Huh? I mean, that, that that's what is going on in the city of Milwaukee. And I think if you talk to a lot of people, they would tell you just how disappointed they've become with Tom Barrett's leadership and his inability. And, and maybe it's just he's tired. Maybe it's just because he's been in the job too long. But but his inability to, like, rein in the craziness that is going on in the city. And the problem uh, is that it's the taxpayers that suffer. And th- this latest example of, like, one of the commissioners just saying enough is enough, you understand life is too short to, to butt heads with people who don't know what they're doing. Unfortunately, those people in the city of Milwaukee, at least, have a lot of responsibility, and it is the taxpayers that suffer. Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. Well, this is the next story. Drew producing the show today and always just buckle up because this is the next story that will, I, I think, capture people's attention, imagination, and passion over the course of the next couple months. Um, Kyle Rittenhouse. Rittenhouse is the 17-year-old who showed up in Kenosha on the third night of the riots. Can we say riots? Yes. He showed up on the third night of the riots, and he was one of the 17-year-old who's there with the, the, the rifle. And, I mean, everybody's seen the video. He's running through the streets, and he ends up shooting three people, killing two, injuring a third. He's 17 years old. He's from Antioch, Illinois, and he's been in Illinois since this happened, fighting extradition. Um, extradition is the process where if you commit a crime in one state and you're charged with the crime in one state and then you're, you're, you're found in a different state, what happens is the authorities, in this case in Wisconsin, have to have to prepare various documents to bring you back, to have you extradited from the state that you are in. Normally, extradition is just a, a very simple sort of procedure because as a general rule, you don't litigate the case during the extradition procedure. All you determine is, okay, is the person who you have arrested, in this case in Illinois, is that the person who is charged with the crimes in, in Wisconsin? And, and then you go back to Wisconsin and then you stand trial. And, of course, the state has to prove you guilty beyond a reasonable doubt or, or not. So that that's typically it's 
it's look, this is that you go down there and most of the times defendants wave it. It's it's not an issue. No, this is the person. This is who they're looking for. This is the Jeff Wagner that they want on whatever charge that they, they want. So normally it, it's waived. In this particular case, lawyers for Rittenhouse have been fighting it and they're they're trying to, I, I think, argue that the charges are, are unconstitutional or a violation of his constitutional rights. Uh, there was a hearing today. The defense attorneys put on no no evidence. Of course, this is, if you're li- listening to our news account at the top of the hour, there's apparently all sorts of protesters on both sides of the issues that are out around the, this courthouse. And some people see this as a clear injustice, and it was a case of a uh, clear place of self-defense. Other people see Rittenhouse as somebody who shouldn't have been there and committed a crime. In any event, the judge down in Illinois announced that he would be making his decision today. It, let me just... Let me end any of the suspense here. Um, Rittenhouse is going to be extradited. He, he's going to be brought back to Wisconsin to stand trial, which will then give us 60, 90, 120, 150 days of discussing, you know, whether or not these charges have been appropriately brought. And it, it's if you look at the video, I, I understand where people are coming from on both sides of the issue. We will, I guarantee you, discuss this on multiple occasions. But my prediction it's and I would call it. It's not a guess. It's not. It's it's an educated prediction. I don't think that there's any basis for at least at this point for not sending him to Wisconsin to stand trial. That's not a position ultimately on his guilt or innocence. It's just this is the guy that the charges have been brought against. Bring him to Wisconsin. Have him stand trial. And I don't know that it's going to end up being the trial of the century in Wisconsin, but it might be, certainly might end up being the trial of the year in Wisconsin. And you know that it's going to have passionate responses from um, all sorts of people. There's also, as long as we're talking about that, there's an interesting piece in the Journal Sentinel about, well, there are appointments and decisions that Tony Evers regrets. There are ones that he says he doesn't regret, that he should regret, like I, I think um, the way he handled the riots in Kenosha. And there's some decisions that he's just happy with. There's one that I, I don't, even Tony Evers can't regret this. Here's the deal. Um, Washahara County, the district attorney last summer resigns, April resigns, takes another job, an elected district attorney. So what happens is the governor gets to fill the vacancy. Governor gets to a point who the DA is going to be. So the governors, what they do is they look for somebody that's qualified. They look for somebody that is, since DAs are elected positions, Tony Evers is looking to find a Democrat that's going to run as a Democrat in November. So Evers appoints this woman named Laura Waite, 46 years old, um, appoints her. She's a graduate from the University of Iowa. She'd been an assistant prosecutor in Wood County. So she gets appointed to this gig. Gig pays 100000 bucks. DA in Washera County makes $100,000. Grew, you wish you went to law school, huh? All right, so here's the deal. She gets appointed. Well, here's apparently what happening happens. You know, she's appointed in April. Beginning around July, she stops showing up. There's a story in the Journal Sentinel that the Corporation Council for Washera County says that she began hearing after July 4th from the DA's office staff that the DA hadn't been in the office. Nobody could reach her. Um, they said Washera County sheriff's deputies couldn't find her at her um, residence. 
They were looking and looking, couldn't find her. Um, nobody knows, apparently, what this woman's been doing, but they do know that she hasn't been showing up for, for work. Nobody's seen her. Um, according to a transcript of a hearing, an office manager says she last heard from Wait on June 26th. So this is this is somebody who's collecting a hundred thousand dollar salary who apparently just hasn't been in the office a- at all. Meanwhile, you know the district attorney's office continues to have all these different cases. She's being challenged by she has an opponent. She's apparently on the ballot, but she hasn't been doing any campaigning. She hasn't been showing up. Nobody knows what's going on. Nobody's answering any sort of questions. She's being challenged by somebody Republican who's says, hey, at least I want to do the job. You know, he's got experience as a prosecutor. Again, it, it's one of those situations where you go, you know, governor, you know, what what possibly were you thinking? And maybe, you know, you have no idea that the woman that you're going to appoint has no interest in doing anything other than collecting the, the paycheck. And again, maybe, maybe there's some issues that stop you from going into work. But in that case, you've got an office to run. You shouldn't apply for the job in the first place. So it's you know, if you think that, you know, Milwaukee or Waukesha or Kenosha, if you think in southeastern Wisconsin that we're the only places that have, like, dysfunctional stuff and craziness going on, you've got an Evers appointee who's appointed as the DA who's apparently stopped showing up for work but continues to collect her paychecks. That election is on Tuesday. The ultimate irony will be if she wins re-election. Can you imagine? This is Jeff Wagner.